This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. The following was recorded at the studios of Co-op Community Radio on Thursday, February 20th. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle Show. My name is Kim Jones, and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. It's been a busy week in Central Texas politics, with the early voting kicking off on Tuesday, continued mudslinging in some of the tougher races, and the bombshell news on Wednesday that Kirk Watson is resigning from his post in the Texas Senate to run the University of Houston's new School of Public Policy. But we're going to put politics aside this week to discuss a different kind of dirty dealing, and that is what the city of Austin is doing to get its, to its zero-waste goal by 2040. Specifically, we're going to dive into the Austin Resource Recovery's composting program, and to do that, we're going to talk to Lena Fisher, who wrote this week's cover story about compost, and to food editor Jesse Cape. Uh, Lena, hello. Hi. And Jesse, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Sure. So let's get into it. Uh, why don't, Lena, why don't you go ahead and give us sort of a, a baseline understanding of what Austin Resource Recovery is and, you know, what they do for us? Yeah. So basically, Austin Resource Recovery handles the um, waste pickup for the city of Austin. So for all the um, blue recycling bins and the brown trash bins that you've had forever, they are the ones who pick it up. Um, and in 2012, they pilot, piloted this composting program with the green bins, um, and you started to see those pop up in September of last year, um, which is when they expanded to the entire city of Austin. Um, so this year, they should be servicing all homes um, except for ones that exceed four units. So that means that apartment complexes are not included. Okay. Um, and I know, I know you want to get into that as a as an apartment dweller. But um, before we get into that, let's sort of just sort of talk about you went on a ride along. What was that experience like? That was pretty interesting because um, it was a lot shorter than I thought it was going to be. It was only two streets, but that took about 30 minutes. So it really <laughs> drove home how long it takes. Um because it's basically manually picked up. So this truck stops at each house and then two dudes get out and basically like manually tip the bins in mm -hmm. so that um sort of made me realize how big of a like how much work it is i guess for people to actually um implement this program mm -hmm. so that was probably the most interesting part about that so once i've i've tossed my compost into the bin it's been picked up where, where does it go from there yeah so basically they pick up the green bins um on the same routes that they would for the uh brush pickup which they've been doing for many years before this and then they bring it to a facility called Organics by Gosh, which is um, in like east of Austin near Hornsby Bend. Um, and they process the compost there. So they also allow, um, so also it's important to note that this is just residential compost. Right. And so for all commercial businesses and units that are above four, so like that includes apartment complexes, hotels, all that type of thing, they um, that is picked up by not the city by private haulers um, and there's and no actual requirement right by the city for right right so restaurants don't actually have to compost no they don't so basically the only requirement is you have to divert 50% of your waste from the landfill so you can do that through any sort of program that you'd like you can compost it in your backyard I talked to a couple of food trucks that do that because they don't have enough waste to justify the cost of uh, paying a private hauler to take it mm -hmm. um, but something like McGuire Mormon Hospitality for example who um, you know they own Clark's Oyster Bar they own um, Jeffrey's Josephine House like a bunch of restaurants and hotels 
in Austin, um, their quantity of food waste is such that they pay a private hauler to pick it up, and then um, they take it to Organics by Gosh as well. So basically all of the city's food waste, um, residential and non-residential, is processed at OBG. Okay, and then once it's been processed, what happens to it? Yeah, so they resell it for um, like mulch. They have, have these end products like soil mulch um, and like that type of thing that basically goes back into uh, growing food. So it's like fertilizers, um, what you would think that like traditional compost is used for. So as I've been talking to you about this over the course of you, I mean, you've been working on this story for, I think you said seven months now, yeah. um, and that you were really taken with the, the, the closed loop idea. And I want you to explain that and also sort of explain where the story started for you too. Yeah. So um, I was but a green reporter back in September <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Jesse gave me this assignment that seemed pretty straightforward. It was, um, Jesse Cape, the food editor, by the way, we, I guess we already introduced you. Actually, why don't we let Jesse <laughs> explain this part because yeah, she's here. If you want. Um, this is one of those typical cron stories that, uh, or I guess it's very atypical, but it is kind of the work that we do when we see an opportunity to write about something. This started off as a profile of just a little business doing some composting. We thought it was cool. We got in a little deeper, ended up pulling the story, and that was, what would you say, seven months ago? And it's been building since then. And we realized that not only was this not just a tiny little profile of one business, but that not really anyone has reported the overall situation with Austin's compost in general. And that's how we ended up with a cover story seven months later, because Lena... Inter interviewed, I don't even know, probably 20 different entities, um, went to different places. We worked, I mean, we had so many meetings and went back and forth and the story just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, but what we realized also is that this pertains to everybody living in Austin because we're all on the same planet and it has larger environmental uh, effects that I think hopefully uh, readers will find that the article kind of brings back down to real life. You know, you eat a sandwich and you don't finish it. What do you do with it? And that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think I think it turned out really well. It's very informative. It did. It took a lot of uh, twists and turns along it the did. way. Um, but, yeah, to go back to that, that original idea, um, what were you, what drew you to, or how did... How did that story get complicated for you and how did that lead you into what the story ultimately became? Yeah, so I think, you know, it began, as you said, as like sort of a profile of this one, you know, pretty small composting company that is like one of those haulers. If we're talking about players in the system, mm -hmm. they pick up from restaurants and commercial businesses to take it to Organics by Gosh. But what was different about this company was they processed it themselves as well. So most haulers just are like the go-between between, between mm -hmm. um, the business and Organics by Gosh. So they were trying to process it at their own farm, uh, including animal products, which is the thing that usually complicates compost. So like mm -hmm. When you think of traditional composting, it's just vegetable stuff, and you're not supposed to put like chicken bones in it. We were talking about earlier, right? That's if you're just like doing it in your backyard. Exactly. That's not that doesn't apply to the city of Austin. It does right. accept chicken bones. Just FYI, we can get into we'll that later. That. So, <laughs> yes. And so basically, that was what that was what made this business's model uh, more complicated was they were composting things like chicken carcasses, um, and the neighborhood that basically surrounded their farm, um, started noticing this smell and complained to the city, and it became this whole um, legal issue as well. 
But what it made me think about was if this small scale can't handle uh, chicken carcasses, then how is the entire city of Boston handling it? Um, like, how can an entire city handle that right. type of food waste that like creates these problems of like odor? Um, and but it's also a very rich resource. So like that was the um, uh, kind of what led me into my next article, which is about regenerative farming, which is that even though it's so hard to deal with, what you get on the other end is such a rich resource that will um, basically allow our soil to be still usable in the future in the face of stuff like climate change that erodes and makes it hard to grow food. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, can you explain a little bit uh, more in, in detail what the, the closed loop system is? It's Yeah, so basically it's um, a system where you're, the waste that is generated from eating um, goes back into the soil that grows the food. So ideally, we would be recycling all of our food waste into uh, fertilizer to grow that same food that we're eating. So we would have like no waste byproduct. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we skipped over the zero waste by 2040 part. Uh, Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Yeah. So about the program? Yeah. Um, so in 2005, Austin committed itself to the Urban Climate Accords, which basically um, a bunch of cities signed saying that they would um, try to become zero waste by a certain year. Um, it it varies by city, like how they're constructing their program and by what year they're becoming zero waste. Um, and so in order to enact that, we did this pilot program in 2011-2012, uh, I can't remember which one, um, where we just basically like um, did a trial run with a a section of the residential neighborhoods um, trying to do the pickup um, and taking it to Organics by Gosh. It's a public-private partnership with the city mm -hmm. with Organics by Gosh. Um, and then they just scaled it up every year since then. And in 2020, they've um, expanded it to the entire city. And they're also, it's important to mention, because I'm so stuck on the apartment question, um, because they don't include apartment complexes. And I think Mike Clark Madison said something like 50% of the city is renters. Um, so it's going to become, you know, a big problem if we can't compost those people's waste. Um, and I know, you know, I live in an apartment complex and I'm not composting because it's just too much work um, and they don't pick it up. So um, it's important to know that they're doing a pilot program of that this year with, um, I think, 10 to 20 apartments are participating um, and they're doing sort of a trial run for six months to see how that will go. And if people want to see about getting into the pilot do they just go to austin resource recovery or is that is that a possibility um the applications were due february 1st so the first round of the pilot is already sort of okay. closed so just kidding <laughs> but um also you know touching back on the zero waste goal for 2040 uh we're doing a waste characterization study this year which is the first one since 2015 um and basically that basically measures how much we're actually diverting from the landfills so we, our goal was 75% diversion by 2020. So we're going to see if that's um, happening this mm -hmm. year. Okay. Well, Jesse and I both compost. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought just to wrap this up, we might talk a little bit about, I don't know, our experiences. You know, I've been doing it for over a year now. Um, I've learned some lessons the hard way. I don't oh, yeah. know about you. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, why don't you talk a little bit about what people should know about composting at home. Well, first of all, I think it's, for a lot of people, it seems really overwhelming and gross and stinky and all of those things. But if you just take a few tiny little precautions, it's none of those things. Um, I used to live in a house with a very large yard and I had my own compost situation and it was great. I was gardening all the time. Um, now I live in a fourplex 
and we're fortunate enough to be under that bracket so we get the green bins and we get to pick it up uh and i i mean it's hot in the summer so things get stinky real quick and so what i realized um for our house um i keep my compost bag in the freezer and i cook a lot and so all of my scraps i just put it in a bowl with my little compost bag and as i'm cooking and you know chopping vegetables and whatnot i throw them in there and then when i'm done if the bag's not full I put it in the freezer, and that way I can kind of add to it when the bag's full, tie it up, throw in the bin. And we should specify, it's not just like a plastic bag you get at the grocery no. store. It's no. a BPA, BPI. BPI. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go, you know, basically where your, your regular trash bags are at the grocery store in that aisle, you will find compostable bags. They'll be very clearly delineated. Yeah, and I was surprised they're not very, and they're not super expensive i think you know you can get 40 of them for four bucks or so so it's a doable thing you can toss your scraps into the regular bin but i learned i learned the hard way that you know i did that in the dead of summer and i opened it up and there was a lot of squirmy wormy things moving around in there and that's fine there that's that means they're doing their business but boy is it gross gross. and uh yes i think uh there's also if you look at austin resource recovery's website Mm -hmm. they've got a lot of really good information about like I didn't realize this layering like Mm -hmm. you can put a lot of paper products and food soiled uh, paper products in there and toss your newspapers in at the bottom and that soaks up the inevitable there's some gunkiness that's gonna happen one thing that um was really enlightening to me was if you order pizza you can't put those pizza cardboard boxes into the regular recycling because they're soaked full of grease and pizza Mm -hmm. cheese and all the things but they're really great for the layering in the compost. Exactly. So that's actually really cool. Also wooden chopsticks. I didn't realize you could also put those that. in there. Yep. So, which is all to say there's, it, it, it can feel a little overwhelming, mm. the number of things you can and can't put in there. Um, again, Austin Resource Recovery has a, has a really great feature. It's called, what do I do with dot, mm. dot, dot. And you just type in, you know, whatever it is that you're not sure about. If it's eggshells, which is a yes, or chicken bones, that's also a yes. If it's liquids or grease, that's a big fat no, um, which I didn't realize until recently. <laughs> um, but I think one of the biggest takeaways, it seems, that came out of this story for you, Lena, um, was if you don't know don't put it in there. Right. Just leave it out. Yeah. Uh, and, and you talk to people at Resource Recovery who whose yes. job it is is to do the sorting and to get yeah. the stuff. And yeah. Just think about whatever you put in there, think that people's hands are going to touch it. <laughs> and also, I would say, too, um, it's interesting to think, yeah, not only are people sorting it, but for me, if you're... You know, we all get a little lazy. We're super busy. If we have that moment when you're cooking and you're like, oh, you know, I'll just throw this banana peel, which was an example we used to kind of bring this back home in a bag and throw it in the trash and it doesn't matter. It's a banana peel. It'll break down. If it's trapped in a bag, it can't break down. So it's worth just that one nanosecond extra effort to put it in a compost bin. Yeah. And I think also when we're talking about climate change, we're talking about the environment. A lot of us feel kind of overwhelmed by the Mm -hmm. enormity of it. But I think something like just understanding the composting situation a little bit better and understanding what your impact is. Like it actually that banana peel actually has a really important effect. Mm -hmm. So. Lena, this is a terrific story. I know you and Jesse worked for months on this thing, and I think our listeners can get a lot of value out of it. So, yeah, thanks for coming in, y'all. Thanks for having me. Joining us now is Screens Editor Richard Whitaker, 
who's here to talk about some news this week coming out of Austin's Powerhouse Animation Studio. Richard, thank you for being here. My pleasure, Kim. So by now, I think everybody's gotten the memo that Austin is a, a big, big hub for film production. But I don't think everybody knows that there's an animation studio here that's making some very popular Netflix shows. Yes. Um, Powerhouse Animation, um, which actually started off uh, in the early 2000s as what's called a full service company. And they do commercials. And if you needed some special effects work done, they do small things. And they, and they start off very small, but they've expanded and expanded and expanded. And they caught the attention of Netflix. Um, and their first big project was that they did the Castlevania animated series for them, which uh, is now just about to go into season three. Um, they also have done their own original IP called Sace Manos, which is this amazing kind of grindhouse Black exploitation meets kung fu series set in Mexico with vampires. It's it's great fun. But the big news that came out earlier this year is that they're doing the reboot of and 1980s kids hold on, <laughs> Masters of the Universe. They are bringing the series back, and it's actually with an old friend of Powerhouses, uh, which is Kevin Smith, the director of Clerks, Chasing Amy, uh, Mallrats. Um, they go back years and years with him. They actually did some of their first commercial work was for him. They uh, built a special clerks game for him. <laughs> they did uh, some animation on uh, the Clerks X disc where they did the lost, the animated lost scene for you uh, hardcore slacker kids out there going back through your uh, DVD collections. Um, but this is a huge project for them. Um, and this week they made some. Uh, they made the cast announcements. Uh, for Masters of the Universe. And uh, there's a lot of names I think people are going to recognize and go, wow, they're working on a project in Austin? That's pretty cool. And I have to say, you know, the big one for me, Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker himself, <laughs> is going to be voicing Skeletor. And this is, if you don't know, if you just think that Mark Hamill is the guy from Star Wars, he actually is, for many people, the voice of the Joker. Uh, because he spent years doing Joker's voice for Batman the Animated Series. So, the, you know, the distinctive cackle. Um, he's going to be doing something like this, we guess, for, for Skeletor, because the whole point of this show is it's not a hard reboot. This is following on from the original 1980 series, but it's just kind of grown a little bit with the audience. And I think that's the big thing they're saying is like, this isn't just kind of you come in fresh. This is it's going to be accessible for kids, but at the same time, you're going to go, oh, that's Mark Hamill doing the Skeletor I know. And that's great fun for hard hard fans of the uh, the series. And do you count yourself as as one of the, were you a pre-existing fan? I I am, I got to say. I never actually had any of the figures because uh, I was a, I was a Star Wars kid. And therefore, whenever I went to the toy store, it was like a, there was a Master of the Universe figure or a Star Wars figure. I'd be like, you know what? I'm getting another Stormtrooper. I'm going to build my <laughs> army up so Moss Man can wait a few days. So... <laughs> So the vocal cast that was announced this week, I mean, it is stacked. Uh, and also, since you've mentioned the Kevin Smith, that that did answer a question for me, which when I saw that Jason Mewes, um, who many people will better better know him as Jay from Jay and Silent Bob. I was like, why did they cast Jason? Oh, oh there it yeah. is. But yeah, there are a lot of He's names here. Why don't you? Stinkle. <laughs> I don't. You know, I vaguely remember watching Stinkle this as a kid. Stinkle was the skunk but... one. And you, I think you can fill in the Jason Mewes Jay skunk jokes all yourselves there <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they, they pretty much write themselves 
it's a reference, kids. Um, yeah, but he's one of the he's one of the big names that I think nobody was kind of surprised about. Um, also, Harley Quinn Smith, Kevin Smith's daughter, is going to um, be voicing Elena, uh, a character nobody's heard of in quite a while. Uh, but it's an incredible cast. Um, Stephen Root. We are getting cringier, and it's going to be Stephen Root. And I, <laughs> if you, I presume he's going to be doing Battle Cat as well. Otherwise, it's just no fun. But he's going to be there. Um, another uh, Office-based star, Dietrich Bader, is going to be doing King Randor and Trapjaw, which is great fun. But we, we also Henry Rollins. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to be uh, Triclops now. Talk about deep cut characters that some of you may not remember. But yeah, I mean, this is uh, a real sign, I think, of the kind of power that powerhouse can bring to get this kind of time this kind of voice talent depth and that's just scraping the uh the surface um yeah we've got lena hattie from game of thrones we've got sarah michelle geller we've got alicia silverstone i mean it's 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 a lot um but let's go back to talking about powerhouse in general um i i managed to catch some of these i'm not a huge animation person but i did my i did my research last night i watched first episode of seis manos and castlevania uh and i'm really curious oh and i watched um oh epithet erased which is a, a wacky trippy kids show um and i'm just curious is there is there a powerhouse in-house style is it all over the place i think there definitely is i mean it started off that they were very much uh doing whatever was needed and then there was kind of this they were very influenced by the design of the early clerks comic and that kind of you can feel that coming through that's very blocky um very primary colors. Now, it really worked. And there's an 8-bit influence and, from, you know, and 16-bit classic gaming influence on a lot of their early stuff. And, you know, a lot of their, you know, they did do a lot of side-scrolling games in the early days that they animated, which have that kind of traditional feel. But as they've gone on, you can feel how that has evolved. And there's a certain muscularity. There's a big anime influence on them. But one of the big things about them is that, unlike a lot of other studios, naturalism of movement is a big deal for them uh so for example with seis manos brad graber who is the uh is one of the founders of the studio and still runs a lot of what's going on there you know he actually does martial arts and when they went when they decided oh we're going to do this show about martial arts they went okay we do motion grab we get people in who are actually experienced uh, in martial arts we video them. We follow what they're doing. So it's all really accurate. And there's this certain fluidity to how they work. While at the same time, it's kind of very epic. They, you know, they're not afraid to go. And I've seen some of the art for um, uh, Master of the Universe because I, I was lucky enough to drop by the studios a while ago. And it's it's got that muscularity. It's got that kind of scale that you really want from Master of the Universe. I mean, and they they managed to meld these two things really well. That they look epic and fantastical and mythological, but at the same time, it feels like real people. And that's a really fine balancing act that has always been impressive that they've hit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, production values is kind of a weird word to apply to animation but you really can it really does feel it feels like a sort of luxuriously dressed set and like it feels like there's very fine detail in there and also in in the sort of the the movie making choices it's like it's almost again it's not a camera rolling but like you feel the shot decisions being made and it's all 2d as well they mm -hmm. they don't work in 3d animation it's that's not their thing so there's this kind of painterly quality almost to what they do it's very it's very you, sophisticated yeah if you know their work the instant you see something by them you go oh no 
that's powerhouse. <laughs> it's, it's a style there that nobody is quite duplicating. And that's why Netflix keeps coming back to them. You know, it, it's got a maturity. It's got a depth to it. It's got a darkness to it, which is something I think really is part of what attracted Kevin Smith to work with them on this particular project, aside from the relationship they got, that they are, they are also massive um, Master of the Universe fans. And I knew this from before before they got the project. You'd go past a few people's desks and was like, is that a vintage Masters figure? <laughs> like, yep, that's an original He-Man. It's like, did you never want to take that out of the out of the the the, uh, the box? It's like, yeah, no, I really felt like leaving it in, but you know, it looks too cool. I will say, I was struck at how unbelievably graphically violent uh, some of the stuff in Seis Manos, in oh, particular. Yeah. I mean, there are limbs flying and guts everywhere. Uh, do we think the Masters of the Universe is also going to be? It's not going to be that dark. Okay. I mean, it's it's going to be action packed. But everything that they've said is that this is going to be much more, you know, if you grew up watching this uh, in the 80s, you're going to be able to jump straight back in. But you'll also be able to sit down with your kids and go, hey, here's this cool series that I love to not worry about, you know, heads falling off. They're bringing Orko back. The flying hat is back. <laughs> the, the comic relief everybody hated. But hopefully this time, and I, you know, I'm knowing how they handle humor, um, and knowing that this is something that Kevin Smith has said he's very serious about. This isn't him coming and going like, oh, I'm going to do a spoof of Master of the Universe. Uh -huh. This is this is a straight-ahead series in the way that kind of you've always wanted because towards the end, the original series got really dopey and not much fun and too much morality play. But this really feels like the, the reboot we've been, the fans have been hoping for for a very, very long time. And do, is there, a, is there a, le a release date yet? Do we know when no, to expect 2021. it? 2021. Okay, uh, because they still got to record all these voices that they've just hired. So. Sure, but as soon as we have any news, we'll tell you. All right, I, I know you'll keep us on top of it, Richard. Thanks so much for coming in and talking uh, to us about it. Absolutely, my pleasure. All right, well, that is all the time that we have for today. Uh, in addition to my thanks to Richard, I also want to give a shout out to our other guests again, Lena Fisher and Jesse Cape. Also, thanks to our engineer, Evan Hearn, and to Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson, as ever, for writing our theme music. Uh, two more things before we check out for the day. Uh, if you pick up an issue of this week's Chronicle, you'll find in it the League of Women Voters Annual Voters Guide. It's a nonpartisan guide to the elections uh, that is pretty useful. Uh, and also, I just want to draw your attention to a terrific interview uh, Rachel Rascoe did with the singer-songwriter Caroline Rose. And she is going to give us our exit music for today. It's a track called Feel the Way I Want. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.